But I do want to introduce myself to you. My name is Dwayne Campbell. Uh, I am a critical care chaplain at Christ Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm also a licensed professional counselor uh, with the state of Ohio. So I'm a, uh, I'm a board certified chaplain. I'm also a licensed counselor. So it bodes well in the hospital setting because the people that I work with, many of the patients that I work with, I'm, I come from the chaplain perspective, helping them to understand some of the dynamics that are going on with them, helping them to understand what is happening, uh, how they can integrate their faith into the healing process. But as a uh, counselor, though I do not charge for my services, people typically will call me up and say, hey, I just have a process that I have to get through. Can you help me with some of these things? Uh, anywhere from physicians to nurses to PCAs, uh, patient care assistants, uh, to transporters, anybody in the hospital can give me a call and say, do you have time to sit down and talk? Absolutely. Let's sit down and let's talk. Uh, doesn't matter what their spiritual background is either. I've sat down with people that are uh, devout Christians. I've sat down and talked to people who are atheists and agnostics. Uh, one of the times that I w was doing a group on spirituality, one of the people rose up and said, well, I'm an atheist. I said, well, okay. Some of the things that we talk about in this session you'll be able to apply them even if you do not have a God center to you. You'll be able to apply those to your life. Three sessions later, she came back and she said, you know what, I'm not really an atheist. I'm probably more of an agnostic. I'm just really angry with God right now. Oh, so we transitioned from being an atheist to an agnostic to being angry with God. That we can work with. That we can help. So... So that's, that's a little bit about who I am. Um, I uh, pastored for, for 12 years on the East Coast of North Carolina, uh, two wonderful churches that really taught me a lot about myself and taught me a lot about ministry, taught me a lot about what was going on in my life and how to actually reach out and meet people where they were. The one thing I found in the senior pastorate that was it, it didn't fit my, if you will, it didn't fit my skill set was... Oh, please. Why are you going up there? It didn't fit my skill set was I wanted to sit down with people who were going through some of the most difficult things in their life to help them to process the issues, to help them to process what was going on and to help them in their greatest time of need to give them encouragement and to give them confidence that no matter what you're experiencing, God is still here with you. God is present, even though you may be shaking your fist at him right now and saying, I don't want to talk to God because God did this to me. It's one of those times where you sit back and you just want to say, I want to sit with you in that time. I want to help you transition in that time where your faith is on pause or where your faith is on hold. And you need to have somebody to talk about the deep issues and the critical issues in your life. And one of the things that I found in the pastor was people would not come to me with those problems. They always had the veneer on saying, everything's wonderful, everything's lovely, and I'm sitting there going, you're in the divorce courts right now getting ready to figure out who's going to keep the kids, and everything's wonderful, and everything's marvelous. If you'll just come and sit down, we can talk about these things, and we can come to a, 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 good, uh, a good resolve uh, on these. But as... As things would have it, I found that whenever I made the transition from a senior pastorate uh, to a chaplain, 
that fit my skill set very well. The one thing in the pastorate that I did notice was the front door of my church was Albemarle Hospital. People that I would visit in the hospitals would come and stay at my church. People that would come in as they were invited, they would come and they would go. But almost every person to a person that I visited in the hospitals that were not a part of our congregation would stay. Because I took time out to sit down with them in their most critical time of their life, to spend time and to let them know it's all right. So to begin, I, I've been having troubles working this, so bear with me. Uh, I want to show you a clip. This is put on by Cleveland Clinic. So it's on the other side of the state. But it was, it's such a wonderful presentation that I thought there's no sound to it, so you'll have to, to read some of the things that come up. This is the shorter version. If you want the longer version, you can go online on YouTube, just type in Cleveland Clinic and uh, seeing through other people's eyes, and uh, the longer version of this will come up. It's just two and a half minutes long. It started. Ow. Uh, why is it not? I'm so sorry. Wow, that is powering up again. <laughs> Thank you. What are some of the things that you want to be able to get out of this session today? I want to fashion this to help you to feel equipped. Like I said, I do have a PowerPoint, but if at any time, yeah, Ken. They were talking to do chaplaincy. You got to go through a school with well, I thought that was two classes with them. Then you have to have your masters. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Close. Is that not necessarily there's other programs out there? Well, if you want to be employed. You'll have to go through, um, it's, it's referred to as the Association of Clinical Pastoral Education, ACPE. There are four units that you would need to take. Um, the, the units are either extended, they go for uh, four months, or they are accelerated, which is a three-month program. Uh, they're different in all parts of the state. Um, so you'll have to, there's, there's 20 different centers in the state. It's up. But uh, you'll, you'll have to go through those and be in the process of becoming board certified uh, to do that. I'll, I'll end my session with, uh, with a further explanation of that. So there we go. <laughs> and if you can't read it, let me know. I'll read them to you. So if you could see people from a different perspective, how would that impact? Oh, come on now. There we go. How would that impact the way that you treat them? How would that impact the ministry that you have to them? When you're talking about ministry to the sick and to the dying, what's one of the most important things to keep in mind when you're going to, to minister to them? What do you think? I just turn the light. Okay. 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 Okay.
All right? The relationship with Christ. Eternal destiny. God loves them. Mm -hmm. What else? One more. Right. Yeah. Definitely the relationship. The relationship. Because have you ever been sick? And when people come to you when you're sick, how do you respond to them? I suffer from GERD. So therefore, I cannot have caffeine. I cannot have pork. I cannot have peppermint. I have to be on an acid on a daily basis. If I have a flare-up of my GERD, it feels like I'm having a heart attack. And whenever I'm in the midst of that, my wife knows putting in his room, giving his cell phone, do not go in and talk to him at all because he does not want to talk to anybody. Outside of that, I'm a happy-go-lucky guy. I'll make a joke at the drop of the hat, and I'll usually drop the hat just to make the joke. I'm approachable. I'm somebody that people can come to, but whenever I'm sick, don't talk to me. Don't come near me. So whenever you're trying to minister to people that are sick, that are in crisis areas of their life, that are the most important things, it's a different skill set than it is whenever we are standing up from the pulpit and speaking to people about what Christ can do for them, how Christ can transform their life, and so on and so forth. It is a gospel that, as um, Spurgeon put years ago, we preach the gospel everywhere we go, and sometimes we use words. And that's what ministry in hospital is all about. You are there. I, I had a friend of mine that I w- was in high school with. He got saved. He came up to me, found out I was a chaplain. He said, man, that's great. You get to preach to everybody every day. It's just like, I get to preach to nobody every day because this isn't about proclaiming a message. This is about joining somebody in the most difficult times of their life to let them know that God is here with them and God, no matter what they have gone through, no matter what they've experienced, no matter what their uh, um, prognosis is, God is going to be with them. Uh, I had an incident whenever I was uh, still in the pastorate. My dad was dying of interstitial pulmonary fibrosis, uh, a form of COPD. And I just really knew at that time, God was going to heal my father. I felt like God had spoken to me. God's going to heal my father. So I stayed and I was preaching. And that night I was going to preach and then go home because my dad was on on his deathbed. And I wanted to be there to witness the miracle. Right before I started preaching on Sunday night, there was a call that came into our office phone. And our office was attached uh, to the side of of the sanctuary. And as I watched the deacon go back and answer the phone and then come back in, I saw in his eyes that my dad had died. And I was just like, God, I don't get this. You said you were going to heal him. And now he's dead. I believed. I fasted. I did everything that I could to make sure that this was going to be a powerful display of your glory. And he died. And it took weeks of me praying. Uh, interestingly enough, first message that I preached after I got back from the funeral was, God is a healing God. 
Talk about being a difficult message to preach. But God began to broaden my understanding of what healing in His sight looks like. Healing sometimes comes whenever we leave this body that is destined to die. and We go to glory, we get that new body that has been promised to us that we can live without tear, we can live without sorrow. He's no lo- First time in, in uh, five years that my dad took a deep breath was right as soon as he died. And he left this body and went, wow, thank you, God. And here I am going, I don't understand it, God. <laughs> so, whenever we're working in hospital ministry, one of, the, one of the best scriptures to come up with is in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 36. And it's interesting to me, as Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goat and the separation of the sheep and the goat, and he starts saying, whenever I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Whenever I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. So looking at this, I was hungry, did an assessment, and I needed food. You gave me food. I was thirsty, did an assessment. I needed something to drink. I was a stranger. I'm homeless. You gave me a home. I was naked and you clothed me. You gave me clothes. I was sick and our natural mind goes to and you healed me because that's what we think. But it says, I was sick and you looked after me. And after looking at this passage of Scripture, it was just like hungry and eat. Feeding somebody, I can do that. Thirsty, drink. Giving somebody a drink of water, I can do that. Stranger, invite them in. I have a home, I can bring them in. I can do that. Um, Naked and clothe me, I can give them clothes. That's what I can do. Sit and you look after me. That's what I can do because healing is in whose hands? God's. God just asks us to do what we can do. He doesn't ask us to do what He does. I've sat at the bedside of somebody, prayed with a family, freshman in college, sophomore in high school, mother just sitting there going, I don't know what went wrong. He was completely healthy. We just ran two miles yesterday. And here he is in a hospital bed with a 5% chance of survival. Brain aneurysm. No way that he's going to make it. Call all the family in. All of his friends come in to bid him farewell. That was two years ago. Four weeks ago, he's sitting in my office talking to me about what is going on in his life. Was it my prayers? I look at it working in the hospital where there's somebody that goes in and all of a sudden I pray for their healing and they depart. They have a, teres- a celestial transfer instead of a terrestrial transfer. They die, and then I pray for somebody else, and they're healed. It's come to my attention that healing is God's business. And I'm putting all my trust. Can he heal? Absolutely. Does he heal? Absolutely. But that healing doesn't necessarily match my definition of what healing is. When I was sick, you looked after me. So this is where we dwell in a hospital setting, in a hospice setting. You're looking after me. You're journeying with me. 
You're coming into my life to make an impact on my life. When you look at the mission field, many times we're going into the mission field, they are right and ready for harvest. But many times if we look, the mission field is right there in our backyard at the local hospital. The interesting thing I found out about the local hospital is the environment that I work in and the people that I work with. There is a vast, diverse culture of people that I work with. This is the first time I've used <laughs> this PowerPoint. There's a vast difference of people that I work with. I get to work with Muslims on a daily basis. I get to work with Hindus on a daily basis. I get to work with Jewish people on a daily basis. I get to work with agnostics and atheists on a daily basis. And oh yeah, I get to work with Christians and Catholics as well. I don't have to go overseas to go to a mission field. The mission field has come to my local hospital. About 16% of all physicians are either agnostic or atheist. Vast majority have a Christian background. And many of those, 62% of them, attend church on a regular basis. The interesting piece about physicians, though, is that 61% of them don't incorporate God into their decision-making process. That's very fascinating. <laughs> On a daily basis, do you, did you, have you prayed about this? Well, no, I do an assessment. And I, I have one surgeon that was in surgery, and during surgery he said, I never had what happened take place, and I didn't know what to do. And I prayed and said, God, you've got to help me here. And God gave instruction and said, I want you to put your finger into the artery, and I want you to start sewing the artery together around your finger. That's not a technique that you learn in school. And I'm sitting there going, sounds good to me, <laughs> and starts doing it, and the patient recovered and survived. And he was able to share with the family, this is not in the textbooks, but I prayed, and this is what God showed me to do. Yes? You are medical uh, patients. For instance, you're sent to the room of someone who is, let's say, who is just mm -hmm. a Do you deal strictly with the Buddhist faith, or do you try to interject what you believe as Christ is Savior? I try to form a relationship, as Tom said. And out of that relationship will come some type of ministry. Um, if they ask me what my faith is, I'll typically put it back to them and say, why is that important to you? So I'm not bringing a message, a clear message of Christ to them, because the hospital um, is not a place of proselytizing. Um, it is a place of journeying with people. But what, you, what I've found is that people, even though they may be of a different faith, still, uh, just as in the book of Jonah, um, where everybody was saying, pray to your gods, and they went to Jonah and said, pray to your God for us, for we know your God can do something that ours cannot. And that's what we look for in this. So if I pray for a Buddhist, I will more than likely leave out in the name of Jesus. Or for a, a Jewish person, I will leave that out with full confidence, God, you hear me. But what I'm wanting to do is form a relationship with this person, and maybe down the road... They'll ask me, there was a guy I was working with for three years. Um, 
he was a, a frequent flyer. And after three years, he finally got to a point where he looked at me and said, I don't understand. You have so much peace. You have so much joy in your life. I don't have that. Where does yours come from? It was all that laying the foundation up to that point, and I was able to lead him to the Lord. And four weeks later, he died. And I had the wonderful privilege of preaching uh, his memorial service. Suffered from uh, some mental health disorders. But it was something of recognizing his frailty and not wanting to take advantage, but at the same time wanting to be Jesus to him and demonstrate to him, this is John 3.16. God loved you so much that he sent me to you to love you for him. And then that opens up opportunities uh, to share. But it, it comes through the development of that relationship. Sometimes you don't have that time frame because people are on their deathbed. Um, but uh, um, it, it's something that uh, I, could, I could lose my job if I went from room to room and preached to people because that's, that's not what I'm there to do. You are a lay person and you're not directly involved as the chaplain. Mm-hmm. Uh, as someone who works and goes and prays for people uh, as a part of my church's ministry. You know, if your job there is to try to minister Christ to them, mm-hmm. and you don't know where to cross the line, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Right, right. Let, let me get through this part because that, that's going to be answered in just a few minutes. So, one of the things, understanding the, the environment that you're in, in a hospital setting, in a hospice setting, one of the things that we have, I, I spoke to somebody that on the way in this morning and they said, I can't go to hospitals. You're doing the hospital thing? It makes me nauseous to walk down the halls. That's probably not your ministry then. <laughs> so that's, that's good. But whenever you look and see the people that you are going to be coming in contact with, if you broaden your perspective and see there's more than just that person that you have been called to visit that needs ministry. You have people from various, there's a melting pot of culture and spiritual beliefs that are in the hospital with all the disciplines that are there. The the success in a hospital is measured by how much we're able to keep people alive. We don't like to have people die in the hospital, though 33% of all people die in a hospital setting. And that figure goes up the older that you get. We don't like this but as I tell the doctors all the time, the, I, I just read the statistics this morning, one out of one people die. And my favorite quote from MASH is whenever Colonel Henry Blake looks at Hawkeye and says, point number one, young men die in war. Point number two, doctors can't change point number one. And it helps them to understand that death is not failure. We all come to an end. But their success, I asked one when I was sitting down as there was a patient that was coding and they were um, stabilizing. I looked at him and said, Ben, what, what does death mean to you? Just like that. Failure? Really? So if a patient dies, what does that say to me? It means ministry opportunity. I can share, I, I can share love, I can share compassion, I can journey with that person as they are going through difficult places, demonstrating to them Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. And it doesn't matter what you tell me, 
I have, a, I have a nurse that almost daily, whenever I go to the, his ICU, he looks at me and says loud enough for everybody to hear, I blame the Christians. I'm just like, yeah, you do, Fritz. <laughs> yeah, you do. Let's talk about that. And what he's saying is his moral distress is because people won't let their loved ones die whenever they are in the dying process. We are gatekeepers. We are people that stand. When you come to the hospital, you may leave, you may not. You may go in for a simple procedure. I I once heard somebody tell me, they said, well, you know, somebody said the difference between minor surgery and major surgery is minor surgery happens to you. If it's happening to me, I don't care how minor it is, it's major surgery. And that's, that is true. That's true. We're gatekeepers. We are trying to keep people on this side of the pearly gates as much as possible. It's an emotionally taxing arena for any individual that goes there. For patients, they have lost so many freedoms They've had so many losses that they have gone through, and they just don't know why they can't get better. For families, some, as uh, Gary, you were talking about early, some having family members who have dementia. Whenever they come in, there's caregiver fatigue. I've given up everything that I have to invest in my parent, and now I'm so angry with them because they just won't... this becomes complicated. They just won't get better or die. It would just be, and you have that internal conflict that you have to sit with, with staff. Staff has to deal with compassion fatigue, moral distress, burnout on a daily basis. If you're working in a hospital, those three areas are three areas that you are going to encounter. Now, all three have different um, reasons why they come up, but it's going to be something emotionally taxing area and as I I shared earlier it is an area that is filled with grief people are always always in the midst Um, in the book all of our sorrows are our grief Anderson says that every single person that goes to hospital is experiencing some type of grief or another grief can be manifested through anger through sadness through bartering through denial, we always like to say in the hospital, denial is more than a river. <laughs> it's a bad joke, but <laughs> in the hospital, it's called gallows humor. It gets even worse than that in the hospital. Shame, guilt, sometimes laughter, sometimes inappropriate laughter. These are all indicators that there is grief that's working with individuals. So the question is, How can I be effective? How can I be effective in this area? Well, some of the things, and these are just some, I'm just going to give you some practical things at the beginning. And and this is connected with HIPAA regulations. Be familiar, if you're going to a hospital, be familiar with where the information desk is. And if you visit there enough, make friends with people. Most of them are volunteers. Some of them are employees. But make friends with them because see you coming and don't know what you're there for. You have great opportunity to minister to them as well as the patient that you're going in to see. Some of the rooms that you're going to go into, some are going to be airborne isolation where you're going to have to wear a mask and gloves because the patient has pneumonia or they have some type of respiratory disease that can be spread. 
If, if it's tuberculosis, you may need more than a mask, and you may not be able to get into that room. So be cautious about that. There are contact isolation rooms where you need to wear a wonderful gown that if you wore it for a half hour, you would definitely lose about three to five pounds of weight in sweat because they are so... I wanted to take one home once and just mow the yard in it so I could lose some liquid weight. <laughs> but gloves, and there are all times you want to be uh, cautious, um, the understanding of hand hygiene. Uh, as you go in, you don't want to take anything into the patient. You don't want to bring anything out. A normal room may look like this. This is an updated uh, hospital room. A normal ICU room may look like this. I, here's, here's one of the fun things. There was uh, These are some IV poles over here. I went into a patient's room 3.30 in the morning. got called in because the patient was getting ready to go. I uh, came in the first thing that the person that was seated next to the bed, the, the daughter of the patient, looked at me and said, because there were six IV poles in there, I know there's more poles in here than you would find in a stripper's house. <laughs> <laughs> that was her way of dealing with losing her parent. And in some settings, that would be deemed as, oh, that's inappropriate. In that setting, that's where people go to. And I have to be comfortable in being able to walk with people during that time. I was just, I was just like, I was even before I introduced myself, I said, well, hi, I'm the captain. <laughs> Guess I shouldn't have said that. I said, you said what you said. It doesn't matter. It was funny. I'm going to use it from now on. <laughs> about things. Hand hygiene, as I said before. You want to locate most places, either have some alcohol rub right outside the room or right inside the room, or there is a place that you can wash your hands prior to going in and then going out. Again, you don't want to take anything in from the outside. You don't want to bring anything out after you've touched the patient because most of us have a tendency that whenever we pray for people, what do we do? We touch them. Scriptural. Absolutely. But you also need to do the pilot thing and wash your hands <laughs> of everything. So to be effective in a hospital visit, plan your visit with the individual, with the patient, with your congregants, or their family's need in mind. What do they need from me whenever I'm going in there? And don't get into a point that sometimes I used to get into as a pastor, because as the pastor, I was supposed to be this person that had ESP, and had this connection with God that you should know what I have need of without me even telling you. Well, you know, Jesus even asked before he prayed for people, what is it that you want me to pray for? So, sometimes, or the majority of the time, find out what that need is. What do they need you to be? As we look in the book of John, the I am statements of Christ, it goes from so many to I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am the... And he says so many different things that he, that he is. Why does he say that? Because he wanted to meet the need of the individual that he was going to minister to. I remember sitting down with a person from um, environmental who was having a difficult time connecting with God. I said, well, can you connect with the concept that God is king? No. No concept of a king. What's a king? We have a president. What's a king? Well, what about Lord? 
makes sense to me. Jesus is Lord. That doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, how about shepherd? He's there to guide you and to protect you. Yes. I can connect with somebody who is able to guide me and protect me. So let's talk about Jesus, shepherd. Assessing the need, what did they need, and then fashioning your ministry to meet the need of the individuals. We, the difficult thing is, in the pulpit, I'm the expert. And I'm sharing the word of God, and I'm proclaiming the truth of Christ. In the hospital setting, the patient, the family, is the expert of what they need. And sometimes there's healing in them being able to say, this is what I need. If you ask many people, what do you need? Most people have an external focus that I give to everybody. I, you come to me, you want something, I can give it to you. But when you ask them, what do you need? Um, I don't know. Ah, it's an opportunity to help them to get connected to what are your specific needs at this time. Again, don't miss opportunities with staff. Staff are there to help the patient and to be an advocate for the patient, but it is emotionally taxing on them. I made the mistake once after a patient uh, died. Uh, the nurse was in the room documenting and was just uh, weeping, profusely weeping in tears. And my assessment was, oh, they cared so much about this patient and they're hurting because they're gone. I went in, and I just greeted the, the nurse. I said, how are you? I'm not well. Oh. They were not tears of sorrow. They were tears of anger. What we did to this person was not right. And what we continued to do to them was not right. I was taking care of a dead person for two weeks just because somebody couldn't make a decision. Oh, mind blown. Now my ministry to that person changes completely because these were not tears of sorrow. These were tears of anger and tears of moral distress. So now fashioning that ministry to minister to the staff member. Let me release you of the need to fix the problem. <laughs> you don't need to fix anything. It's not about fixing the problem. It's about going in and journeying with these individuals. Let me see if this... In their most difficult time, And you don't need to be the Bible answer person. One of the most difficult questions. What, what, let me ask you. What is the question that you may encounter whenever you visit somebody in the hospital? Why? Why? What's the answer to why? Uh -huh. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. And that's all right. You don't have to know. Because what's going on with the individual when they get to that why? There is an internal struggle with their faith that is taking place. That God knows 
that this internal struggle is going on, and he has not brought this to them so that they would lose faith in him, but he has brought this to them so that their faith may transition and grow in him, that they may see things in a different way. Why is this happening? Is it because of sin that I'm going through this? Don't be Job's counselor and bite into that. Is it because of sin that I'm going through this? Easy response? I don't know. Tell me. Is it because of a sin? Has God identified a sin? Well, this is what I'm experiencing. Okay. So what can we do with that if God has identified? I'll confess it to God. Go ahead. Confess it to Him right now. And he who is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins shall, cl- shall cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's not up to me to have the answers. It's up to me to hold their answers and to hold their emotions so that they can go through the time of processing. I don't want them to depend upon me for answers. I want them to depend upon him and get a connection with Him who is going to give them the answer that is fashioned specifically for them. What did I ever do to deserve this? I remember one group, a person was in the group and they said, you know what, I ate right, I didn't put any toxins in my body, I made sure that I had all the right, uh, all the right vitamins, so on and so forth, in me so that I would, I would live a healthy life. And now here I am with stage 4 cancer. I don't get it. Yep. Book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, always vanity. Why do we even do the things that we do if in the end result the good get punished and the punished are difficult questions that I don't need the answer to. I just need to hold them and journey with them as in their relationship with God, that relationship with God. That is where that answer becomes uh, starts to materialize. The greatest thing that you can do for somebody when you go to minister to them, and I would even say this is even greater than prayer. Listen. Just listen. That's all you have to do. Hear what they're saying. Embrace them while they are going through this difficult place. I love the Chinese word for listen because it breaks down into five components. The Chinese word for prayer deals with the ear, that instrument that you use to listen. It's part of it, part of the character is also king, which means the person that you're listening to, you listen to them like it's the king that is speaking to you. It's uh, another aspect of it is ten eyes where you see it from multiple perspectives, not just one perspective, but it also contains the word one, which means you are singly focused on that individual themselves. And it also encompasses the character heart. You bring your full self into that encounter with them. And as you bring your full self in, now they are validated. I went in to a patient um, probably six months ago patient was a very spiritual patient, believed in prayer, and definitely wanted prayer the first time that I met the patient. Second time I went in, they were not being heard. 
They were telling physicians, this is what I want for myself. And physicians were not paying attention to what they were saying. So by the time I got in, they were so angry and so frustrated. And one of the things I say to the patients is, if you get angry and you need to yell at somebody, yell at me. Don't yell at your nurse. Because your nurse is taking care of you and you don't want to hack off your nurse at all. Don't yell at your um, doctor because your doctor will take it personally and they'll start not paying as much attention to you. Yell at me. Get it all out. And sat there for 15 minutes and just, oh, I'm just so angry and so frustrated and so blah, 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 blah. One thing after another, after another. And all of a sudden, after 15 minutes, came down, took a deep breath, and went, thank you for so much for being here and for listening to me. So would you like prayer? Nope. That's all I needed was somebody to listen to me. Excellent. Bless you. I'll be back tomorrow, next day. Check on you again. Listening for somebody that is sick, somebody that is distressed, somebody that is traumatized many times does more for the patient than prayer. Do I not believe that prayer works? Absolutely prayer works. But I have to be discerning whenever I use prayer. I... um, Read from a nurse once that there was a physician, uh, there was a pastor that would always come into the oncology unit. He was a great guy. Everybody loved him on the oncology unit. But whenever the patient would start talking about the trying of their faith, anger that they had, or anything that was a negative emotion, the pastor would just stop them right there and go, let's pray. And the nurse was going, but they have so many emotions that they need to process. They have so much more. And what they were discerning was the pastor only was comfortable to a point and wouldn't allow the people to go into any negative emotions because that's not of God. That's of the devil. Well, negative emotions are a part of being human. And the part of humanness, Jesus came into this world, he was 100% human, but he was 100% God. So we allow people to experience the humanness with the hope of someday introducing them or helping them reconnect with the spiritual and how those two will interplay with each other. So use discernment whenever you pray. Because you don't pray for somebody that you go in doesn't mean it was an unsuccessful visit. You can be just as successful if you listen to them without praying as you are, and I would even say you're more successful if you listen to them without praying than you are if you pray for them and don't listen. Because going back to Matthew chapter 25, I was hungry and you fed me. How did you know that they were hungry? You had to listen. You had to hear what the need was. And then you were able to fashion the ministry to the need. So use discernment concerning prayer. Does prayer work? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have so many stories. I'm just like, oh my goodness. Prayer works. I've seen where prayer has worked and it has brought people to salvation or salvation and brought healing to them. I've also seen where prayer works and the person dies. Because the prayer was for a peaceful death. Prayer works. But not always in the way that we think. 
Remember, what matters most, and there's a principle I want to share with you about, what matters most is that you took time out to be there with them. That is the biggest thing for them, and they will never forget that. And I realize, I like this quote, it says, the people who are with you during your darkest nights are the ones worth spending your brightest days with. How many people that go through troubles and trials say, well, I thought these people were my friends, but whenever I went through this dark place, they all left me. When you are willing to go and be with somebody in one of the worst days of their life, they will never forget that. The reason I can say that is because in end-of-life situations, I spend maybe somewhere between uh, 10 to 20 minutes with, patient, with uh, families. And I can't tell you how many times I've been out in the community and somebody comes up to me and says, oh, well, there was a time I was doing a presentation in Louisville, Kentucky. A person sat down in the front row was just engaged in everything that I was saying about how to, uh, how to uh, engage chaplains into the workforce in, in a hospital setting, came up to me afterwards and said, I just want to thank you for all that you've done. And I'm thinking, that was a pretty good presentation. <laughs> in Louisville, Kentucky, this person comes to me and says, my mother was in Christ Hospital, and you were the chaplain that came and ministered to us during that time. Fifteen minutes. But yet here, three years later, she remembered my name and she remembered my face and went to a nurse's convention where a chaplain was speaking and went, oh, I know him. They remember you and they value the ministry that you have because you walked with them in the darkest time of their life. So... There are some HIPAA regulations just to remember. Now remember, it's HIPAA, not HIPPO. <laughs> HIPAA is just a requirement by healthcare facilities that we must keep patients' personal health information confidential. Whether it's in writing, whether it's oral, it is something that we have to keep confidential. Therefore, whenever you're looking at how does this relate to me as somebody that's coming in from the outside that's not a part of the chaplaincy program, this is how it relates. Learn how your local hospital shares information about patients' spiritual background. You just get familiar with that because not all hospitals do it the same way. Ask for a room number. Uh, Ask for the room number of the patient. Don't ask if, if the patient's in there because if you're asking if the patient is in there, they may not tell you. If you ask for the room number, they assume you know already and they will give you the room number. Just a quick tip there. Don't ask the staff for information about a patient's diagnosis or treatment because they will not be able to tell you unless they, you have been put on a list of people that uh, can uh, have information and that list is very rarely gone over. By hospital staff, you may need to dismiss yourself if a doctor enters the room to keep and protect the patient's privacy. And one of the things that I would share with pastors all the time, share information about what's going on with a patient at, a pa at the patient's permission. Don't just, oh, so-and-so told me that so-and-so was in the hospital and they have stage 4 cancer. Let's put it in the church bulletin and have everybody pray for them. 
get permission from the individual themselves before you do something like that. Yes? If you want these slides, um, I will email them to you. Quick, quick story. This one? Quick story, my, my daughter is a midwife, and so um, the worship leader at our church was having a baby. We knew that. And um, we got family together, and my daughter was all smiles, and she didn't say anything. We knew that the baby had been delivered. We didn't find out that she delivered the worship leader's baby until Sunday morning when he told the congregation. Even something like the birth of a baby. Right. She couldn't share that nope. she had delivered their baby. Exactly. So so pe- people will come up, hey, have you seen so-and-so? I don't know. Can't even tell them. Yeah. You want to, but you can't say a word. So like I said, by all means, I will, I will gladly share this with you. And any other questions that you may have, um, feel free to, to email me. Uh, steps to becoming a hospital chaplain. I'll go over this uh, fairly quickly. If you want to be a hospital chaplain, make sure that you have a calling into it. It is not an easy place. It used to be that chaplains were looked at as people that couldn't handle senior pastor ministry. Yeah. Always had a stigma attached to it. And I went to some pastor and said, man, I wish I had your job. They said, well, come on. Walk with me for a day. Um, no, I'd rather do my stuff. Because huh. this isn't something that's an easy job. It is something that you have to be called into because it is dealing with people at their most difficult um, uh, times in their life. Identify a local clinical pastoral education uh, center that's near you. There are 20 in Ohio. There are five in Cleveland. There are five in Cincinnati. There are three in Columbus and three in Dayton. And then there are uh, individual outshoots in Marion, uh, Ashland, and Toledo. So something that is fairly local to you, we have people coming to our clinical pastoral education. This always amazes me. We have people coming from New Jersey. We have people coming from Africa. We have people coming from all over the world that are coming to do clinical pastoral education with us. We feel very honored, very humbled that God has given us the ability to have a site, but not only to have a site, but to be able to affect the world with these sites. We we have a guy that's coming to us this summer who is a priest over in a third world country that his um, parish is connected to the hospital. The parish runs the hospital. He's the chaplain of the hospital. Most hospitals require, if you want to be on staff at a hospital, they require that you have four units of CPE or that you're working towards your board certification. Um, BCCI is the only only recognized uh, by the government right now. Uh, Healthcare chaplaincy organization is trying to become recognized, but the board certified chaplains incorporated, that is the only one that is being uh, recognized by the government right now. And that would be what you would need to to be working towards if you want to be a hospital chaplain. Uh, Doesn't mean you don't have to have four units to be employed. I became an employee at Christ Hospital with one unit. But I had to take the other three during that time, and I had to go on to become board certified. Uh, I, there was no time frame. Yeah. It took me 
took me eight years to get through the process. And in Ohio, we have at least seven or eight healthcare chaplains that are employed by hospitals. The one thing that is an awesome opportunity is if you uh, if you're not in a metropolitan area, you're in a very rural area, start volunteering at that hospital. I've heard numerous stories of pastors getting into the local hospital, volunteering their services. Hospitals have to address by JCO standards. There's a joint commission who is over all 233 hospitals in Ohio. Hospitals are required to address the spiritual needs of their patients. If that hospital does not have a chaplain, who's going to do it? People that are not qualified. Therefore, if you start showing up and you start ministering to the needs of the patients and developing a good rapport with the hospital, with the staff, with the administration, guess what might happen? Might get a job. Secondarily, there might be people that are there that see you and deem you as a safe person to go to and ask, where do you pastor? Where do you minister at? Where do you attend? I want to attend where you attend great opportunities that are out there. Uh, the director of our department and myself, we trained uh, chaplains at a new hospital uh, in Westchester. It took about, uh, they were all volunteers. It took about two to three years until the hospital recognized that there was valid, uh, validity in the chaplains being there. Now they have two uh, full-time chaplains at the hospital. So it's something that and some of the research that I'm working on right now, there's a lot of, um, a lot of research out there because of the Affordable uh, Care Act. Hospitals are starting to be reimbursed by Medicaid by their uh, patient satisfaction scores. Having spiritual needs addressed, research is telling us, directly impacts patient satisfaction scores. So as you bring that out, it's just like, wow, opportunity. Only problem is we are not a revenue generating department, but we are a revenue saving department. And we do impact patient satisfaction.